Years ago, not long after I was ordained, I received a phone call from a distraught mother. Her son had received a diagnosis of an uncurable disease, not fatal, but life-changing and life-limiting and utterly unalterable. She wanted me to do her a favor. She wanted me to pray. She wanted me to pray that despite all the doctors had told her, God would heal her son. Without hesitation, I agreed. I believe in miracles. As strange as it may sound to some, I believe that God sometimes reaches down and intervenes in our lives in ways that doctors cannot explain. I would be happy to pray, I told her. But that wasn't all she wanted. I need you to call another priest, another member of the clergy, and I need you two to pray about this together. Now I hesitated. Why? I asked. Because, she explained, I was reading the Bible today, and I read that passage where Jesus tells his disciples that if two of them agree about anything they ask for, it will be done by their Father in heaven. I believe with all my heart that if you and another priest pray about this, God will hear you and grant your request. I let silence fill the space between us. This wasn't faith. This was magic. This was a sort of Christianized witchcraft. But I wasn't strong enough to say so. I wasn't strong enough to tell this distraught woman that God doesn't work like that. So instead, I started to explain to her whatever excuse I could come up with, that the prayers of lay people are just as effective as those of clergy, that that Jesus probably didn't have that in mind when he spoke like this to his disciples, but she wasn't convinced. And I wasn't willing to speak clearly enough to her in order to disabuse her of that notion. So I promised that I would do what she asked. Now, I didn't tell my boss and didn't ask him to pray with me. He would have recognized right away what sort of foolish trouble I had gotten myself in. But I couldn't call any of my colleagues nearby because they too would have seen my request for what it really was, the half-hearted prayer of a spiritual coward who didn't have the guts to tell a grieving mother that he couldn't conjure up a miracle no matter how many clergy he prayed with. So I called one of my friends and colleagues back in England the one whose brand of Anglican Christianity most prominently features the gifts of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues and laying on hands in order to heal. But even he saw straight through my request. You know, God doesn't work like that, he said. I told him that I knew God didn't work like that, but that I had promised this mother that I would do it. And so I needed him to pray with me about this thing. And so we prayed even though I knew in my heart that God wasn't going to use our prayer in order to grant this mother's request. God doesn't work like that. 
God doesn't look down and say, oh, look, two people are gathered together in Christ's name. They're agreeing with one another about their request. I guess I'd better grant whatever they ask. God doesn't work like that. Despite what this gospel lesson tells us, we are not granted the power of communal wish fulfillment. But I think Jesus tells us that God does give us power. And the power that he gives us, I believe, is even greater than what we might have if God were a genie in a lamp. As followers of Jesus, as people who believe that in Christ the kingdom of God has come to the earth, we have been given the power to act on God's behalf. We've been given the power to act in order that God's kingdom might be manifest in and through us. You might remember hearing some of the words from today's gospel lesson a few weeks ago when we heard Jesus tell Peter that he was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven and that whatever he bound on earth would be bound in heaven and whatever he loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. Well, today we hear those same words spoken a second time but this time Jesus isn't talking to Peter. He's talking to us. We are the ones to whom Jesus is giving that authority, not as individuals, but as the church, as the ecclesia, the collective body literally of the called out ones. Jesus has called us out. Jesus has called us together in order that as his followers, he might invest in us the authority to decide what to bind and what to loose, what is required and what can be left aside, what is of God and what is not. Because that power resides in us, we no longer need a voice to thunder from the clouds in order to hear what God is speaking to us. When we hear the voice of the church speaking as one, literally as a symphony, as a harmony of voices that speaks one truth, then we will have heard in us the voice of God declaring where God's kingdom is to be found. But how is that possible? How is it possible for selfish, greedy, sinful human beings to get it right every time? I'm sure you've noticed the scandals that have rocked the church in this and every generation. You've read about the horrific deeds that the church has done in the name of Christianity. I don't pretend that simply because Jesus has handed over that authority that the church is going to be on the right side of history every time. Far from it. But I do believe that we have been given the power to make clear to the world what is God's will whenever we are united in Christ's name. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind and loose on earth will be bound and loose in heaven. Truly, I tell you, if two of you agree about anything, it will be done by my Father. How is that possible? Why is that true? Because, as Jesus says to us, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. It seems like through most of Christian history, Jesus' followers have spent a lot of time and energy trying to figure out when it is that he will come back in the clouds. 
But I wonder what might happen if we used as much time and energy trying to discern his presence among us here and now when two or three are gathered in his name. That presence is what he promises us. If the kingdom of God has come to the earth in Jesus Christ, then that kingdom, that reign, that authority, that rightness, it's present on earth whenever and wherever we gather together in Christ's name. But the key to all of that, the key to making that kingdom present, Jesus tells us, is our unity. That's why Jesus explains in such detail the links to which we must go in order to preserve the unity between us. If any member of the church sins against you, he says, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. And if that doesn't work, get two or three others to go with you to try to get that person back. And if that doesn't work, get the whole community involved. That's how important our unity is. It's so important that if someone won't even listen to the whole body of the faithful, then let that person be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What harsh and final words coming from the one who so often ate with tax collectors and other sinners. But Jesus' words are not idle. It's not an empty threat. It's an important instruction Because Jesus knows that only when the power of forgiveness and reconciliation is manifest throughout the community of his followers, only then will he be present in their midst. And once that power of unity vanishes, so does Jesus. I've spent so much time and energy over the last several months trying to figure out how and when we can come back together in person that I probably haven't paid enough attention to the real threat to our spiritual community. As hard as it is for us to stay apart from one another because of the pandemic, the real danger we face as the body of Christ is not the coronavirus, which may have the power to push us apart and even to kill us if we are not careful. But it alone cannot dismember this body. The real threat to us is that of disunity, which is the thing that has the power to undermine Christ's presence among us is surely the work of evil. In this time of physical separation and political uncertainty and cultural division, we can all see all around us how the forces of evil are at work, trying their best to pull apart the kingdom of God, trying to rob that kingdom of its power here among us. But we have hope. Our hope is not that we would overcome our differences in order that Christ might be present among us. Instead, our hope is that because Christ has already come to us, we now have the power to overcome whatever differences and disagreements seek to pull us apart. God did not wait for humanity to get its act together before sending God's Son to the earth. God did not wait for us to agree with one another before reaching down in order to make us whole. As those who have been restored to unity with God in Christ, 
we have been given the power to make that unity, that kingdom present here throughout the earth. Now that's not easy. It's not easy to reach out to the person who has wronged us and to seek reconciliation quietly instead of sharing our hurt with the whole world in order to bring shame upon our adversary. It's not easy. But that work is the work of God's reign here on the earth. That is where Jesus is to be found. For wherever two or three are gathered together, despite all that would seek to pull them apart, there Jesus and the power of God's kingdom are to be found, even right here among us.